It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the Hive Jive. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for another Beekeepers Chat here with Natalie and myself. And today, um, we're going to give you some homework right off the bat. Uh, You may already remember this. It may be fresh in your mind. It may not. So if not, you can go back and check it out. So right off the bat, there was a bonus episode that originally aired here on Patreon a couple of years ago, but it was re-released out onto the main platform here as a bonus episode not that long ago. So if you go look for Thymol Entrance, I think, or Thymol Portal, um, it is a it is the last bonus episode actually that came out. And I will actually link it here in the description for this episode. I will put a link to the Hive Jives page where that episode lives. And then uh, we'll also put a link to the most recent article. But in that episode, Ken and I originally were talking about this young lady that at the time, again, a couple years ago, she was 17 and she had come up with this concept to create an entrance portal. Um, It now actually has a name. It's called a hive guard. But it was an entrance portal that was created out of a plastic that was also infused with thymol. And it was a means to go through and help reduce mites and treat mites and do things like that. And I went through, I went back and re-listened to the episode actually just before we did this show. So it would be fresh in my mind. And I have a list of uh, some thoughts and questions and things here from that. But first and foremost, so the facts right off the bat, again, everything's linked down below. You can pause this, go click on it, listen to that original episode. It's honestly, the episode is only like 23 to 27 minutes, and it's only the first 13 minutes of the episode that we talk about this specific topic. So it's not going to be a like big time crunch for you there. Um, but her name is Raina Jane. And she's currently 20 years old, but again, she was 17 when she first started this. She's created a thing called Hive Guard, and it is an entrance reducer or an entrance portal. And I even said in that first episode, when you look at it, it kind of reminds me of a mouse guard. It's this long block with a bunch of little holes in it that are just big enough for one bee to basically pass through at a time. Now, that was when she was a junior going into her senior year of high school. They were going through all this, coming up with the idea, the design, the concept, did some initial like theoretical testing. Well, in 2021, it actually went into its actual trial phase. And there's roughly about 2000 beekeepers that were going through doing trial testing on it. And they said in this article that was published November 18th of 2022, um, that <laughs> it is soon to be released Mm -hmm. later this year. Well, this year is almost over. So I kind of question that part. It might be something that happens in 2023, but I thought it would be a good idea to kind of go back and rehash this because I don't have Ken sitting here across from me now. I have Natalie sitting here and that's going to be a whole different, as we said, can of bees (laughs) or can of worms (laughs) on the uh, responses. But my initial thoughts here. So again, high level overview, you can go read the article, but It is made out of a plastic that is infused with thymol. And every time a bee passes through, a trace amount of this thymol is then coated onto the bee. It is a small enough 
application, they claim that it does not harm the bee, but it will kill mites. It'll kill the Varroa mites. So when I first heard it, and again, I want to reiterate this because especially coming from the mind of a 17-year-old, this is a very novel concept. This is awesome on her part. Yay for her to go out there, put herself out there, come up with something that is creative and is trying to do the right thing. Now, we can leave all the rest of the implications of this to speculation and and possibly not later in the episode. But Mm -hmm. I want to say that up front because I don't want the episode to sound like we are bashing on her specifically. We are just going to be talking about the concepts, the ideas, um, implications that it may have. And again, very novel concept coming from a 17-year-old. Congratulations to her. This is awesome that she's actually able to do this and to follow it through. Um, She's also created another company in 2020 called Queen Bee, which is a supplement company. And I want to give kudos to the first part of this because it is a health drink company that incorporates bee products like honey, pollen, royal jelly. Pin mark that because we're going to come back to that later. Um, But for every single bottle sold, a pollinator tree is planted in sub-Saharan Africa to go through and help pollinators and try to help. That's, Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So again, kudos for this aspect. That's great. Now then, on to my initial thoughts, and I promise I'm going to shut up and let Natalie go, but I wanted to I wanted <laughs> to try and set the stage here. <laughs> so my initial thoughts was obviously it's a novel idea. Good for her. I just I just said all that. Um, I do question the fact that it's only treating the bees as they're coming and going. I don't know how long it would necessarily stay on the body of the bee. And this is from the original episode. So I'm rehashing these initial thoughts. And then we'll go into now that I've had time to think about it a little bit further. But it's only coating the bee or treating the mite as it goes through this portal. So it's only going to affect the bees that are returning to the colony or leaving the colony. Now, the thought that that spanned after that was... That's awesome if you have a colony that you know doesn't have a mite count. You could have something that is now preventing mites from coming in that they may pick up at other forage sources. So that's a plus. And it could prevent the whole transmission of mites from one colony to another because it could potentially kill a mite before it left the colony. But my other initial thought, though, was what about the nurse bees? What about all of the mites that are already underneath the cappings that may emerge And then don't necessarily become phoretic and get on the back of a bee, but potentially go over and go back down into another cell. If those mites never leave the colony or never get on the back of a bee that has been through the portal, aka a forager or a guard bee, they would not necessarily come into contact with the substance and therefore probably would not have any effect on them. So I did question that aspect of how it would possibly work. Um, And then... A few other questions in there was going to be, what is the efficacy or the effective duration of this substance, this block that they put in there? Does it diminish over time? Do you have to replace it? And is it intended to be a permanent thing that you have to put on the front of your hive? So that is all of my initial thoughts. So I'm going to turn you loose and let you bat back and forth between any of those that you would like, or even the ones that you've come up with uh, when you went through and looked at the article itself. So summarize again, you got the uh, basically efficacy. That was number three. Number two was. Um, so F, the, the initial questions on the product itself, like what is the efficacy or the duration? How long does it last? Because if it's just coated or permeated with this stuff over time, it's going to fade. Anything that's off gassing has a duration to it. So mm-hmm. if that's the case, then how often do you have to change it? Right. Because from a financial standpoint for a beekeeper, 
yeah, it's a novel concept. If it was a one and done, that would be amazing, but it's probably not. And therefore, how much does it cost? How many are you buying? How often are you having to put them on there? So that was, that's kind of the summary of that. That was much longer than the original. I don't think you can call that a summary. (laughs) I was asking for one, two, three, so people could keep up. One, what is the efficacy period? Two, how often do you have to replace it? Um... And then the and three, is it meant to be permanent? Right, exactly. Okay, so uh, we're going to do back and forth, right? Some sure. of my things I was uh, looking at first, what other um, concepts? Well, I, we can talk about that at the end. Um, but um, things that uh, maybe interfere with some of the functioning of the colony, right? Unintended consequences. Um persistence as in um what happens when it mixes with wax and honey and how much of it stays in the colonies right and um some kind of accumulation if is there an accumulation effect or any kind of toxicity for the bees themselves because the article was saying basically um they're none and and that's one of the things that makes me raise my eyebrows always because i i, I don't think that that's true anytime you introduce something in the beehive you have some kind of consequences now how bad are they how long term are they and are they really significantly affecting the colonies um, in their functioning um the other thing i wanted to talk about is basically resistance in the mites as well and that um age old putting the pressure on the mites as opposed to the bees for them to get stronger, right? So those are kind of like the general lines of what I wanted to look at. So kind of like a um, a beyond the scenes as far as the colony is concerned. Right. So in the original episode, I posed this to Ken, asked him what he thought thought about it. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of went back and forth for a little bit. And one of the things that I said At the end of that episode or at the end of that section of the episode, I did make a comment then, mind you, several years ago, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it is actually a novel concept because instead of putting the treatment inside the colony where it's Mm -hmm. off-gassing inside the colony, it's permeating the wax, it's getting inside the honey, which is hydroscopic and pools anyway, and contaminating things because you can't use that specific type of treatment in the colony when you are actually doing a honey harvest or a nectar flow Mm from the internal standpoint. So I was a little bit curious and kind of intrigued by the fact that if this is something at the entrance, maybe it would free that up and it wouldn't be such a problem. No, however, think again. however, nowadays, when I go back and I think about it now, I think about there is a returning forager going through this tunnel. It is coating the bee. If the bee is carrying pollen, the pollen is also getting coated, and therefore you have a direct contamination of the food source that is going in and being stored inside the wax, being mixed up, being fed to the babies. So, Mm -hmm. and I did not think about that at the time. That's one of those unintended things that I didn't think about it until years later when I went back and reviewed it, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, though. You know, (laughs) what about that aspect? (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and then it's a little bit true, although probably less for nectar through trophallaxis, if there's any kind of contact between body parts um, that are coated with that liquid, right? So, but also what I think is interesting is I actually went to her website and I looked for it. Those devices are $30, by the way, and they're, I think, 3D printed. Yes, so, they are 3D printed. And they're marked as sold out right now. But uh, the, the comments on the product description was that, 
um, thymol is released onto passing bees via contact and subtle agitation, causing the veromites to disengage from the bee abdomen as they enter the hive. Thymol will also be consistently released as a gas into the headspace of the hive, enabling automatic and continued control of the veromite population. So that addresses exactly what you were talking about. Uh-huh. Because yeah, if it's also constantly mm -hmm. off-gassing at the entrance, it's being pulled in and then the, the gas is going into the rest of it, uh, yep. which would then go back to the whole by the actual treatment of thymol, which... I said it in the original episode and I should have wrote it down and I haven't used any of this stuff in so long it may escape me. So apologies if I say this wrong, but I think Apigard or Apigard is the thymol treatment. Yeah, I'm and, not a treatment specialist. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I was like, apologies <laughs> if I say this wrong. Um, and it is, it specifically says do not use with honey supers on the hive. Exactly. So now you've potentially limited yourself to either having minty honey or... Mm -hmm not being able to use this when the main nectar flow is going on, which that's when the main population is increasing. That's when the mite population is increasing. Um, that's when you have the most forage and potential for cross-contamination and cross-infection. Yeah. So that's a whole other <laughs> scenario right there um, that I was not necessarily thinking about at the time, but that is a very good point. It's well, going to be exactly. in there. The organoleptics, I think, is the technical term for the, basically the the, the transfer of those tests to the honey. And if you think about it, wax is actually lipophilic, right? So you're using an essential oil. Yeah. Um, and wax and, absorbs oils. Exactly. <laughs> and then honey will absorb back some of that. So that exposure is going to remain. And we all know that honey nectar gets transferred across um, the colony in different areas of the comb. So there's a high potential for that to be uh, an issue. I mean, to, to um, I don't know if every beekeeper knows that when you feed sugar syrup, there's a potential for your honey to be contaminated as well. And um, we see every year at the Texas Beekeepers Association, some people get disqualified, uh, not realizing that their bees have put some of that sugar syrup into, uh, they end up in the honey supers, even if they stopped feeding sometimes earlier than what the, the nectar flow hits. So yeah. you have a movement of those uh substances and because of that you would have potentially uh contamination from the the wax itself where you've got the minty taste like you said that right if it if it absorbs into the wax and then they put nectar in there and they dehydrate that down and it goes through the process and they cap it that honey is going to pull a little bit of that essence from the wax honey being hydroscopic meaning it's desperate for moisture and it pulls it also pulls odors so if you right. store honey inside of a container that has a bad smell, that honey is going to pick up that bad smell and it's going to actually affect the taste of the honey. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's something to keep in mind if you want to use that kind of solution. Uh, the other aspect of things I was looking, I was doing some research. So I didn't listen to the episode with you and Ken. That's okay. So I, don't know, I don't know what you guys discussed. So I'm completely, you know, unbiased from that standpoint. <laughs> Uh, but I would say that the research I was doing over the last, you know, 20, 30 minutes was uh, basically uh, there's evidence that it interferes with the phototactic behavior of the bees, meaning it disrupts their way to react um, to light. And, and since we know they use that to help direct themselves with their ocelli, 
I think there's something to be considered. The other thing that I saw is that uh, thymol, and that's thymol I'm talking about. I'm not talking necessarily about her device, but the product that that, that device is. Yeah, so the, the essence and essential oil that has been infused into mm -hmm. it. The other um, results that they were discussing was the increase in um, uh, uh, brood removal potentially. So that can have also a negative aspect from that standpoint. Um, I don't, I'm not sure about that one, but they also said it weakens the immune system of the bees. So yeah, that so was a bit more problematic. One of the things that Ken pointed out, and, mm -hmm. and again, between Ken and I, it wasn't going to be a very super in-depth conversation about <laughs> certain aspects. But one thing that Ken did point out, which I was, you know, kudos to Ken on this one, is the fact that at one point, as we were going through and we were doing those initial uh, hives and inspections and learning and things like that. One of the things that we did is we did treat several different colonies with some of the different types of treatments, formic acid, apigard, the thymol, um, things along those lines so that they could have a better idea as the listeners as to how it's supposed to work, what it does, and then also get a response back on what happened to the colony. Mm -hmm. And on the two colonies that were treated with thymol, number one, one of them straight up absconded. They were like, yeah, screw this. It stinks. We don't like it. And so Ken points out, he goes, but bees hate the smell of thymol. Like they, if it gets too strong, they don't like it. It made that one colony leave. Another colony completely basically crashed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, was it the off gassing of the thymol? Were they already just too far gone from other issues? Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know. What I know is that of the two that we treated with that, both of them had negative effects. Yes. And the interesting thing was that the bees that were still remaining in the yeah. one colony were hunkered over in one side, they would not touch any of the comb that was yeah. up by the treatment. And as you pulled that out, even months later, you could pull that comb out and it still smelled like thymol. That's awful. So, and now you've got this right there in your entrance, which could cause a problem. <laughs> well, and it's, it's a repellent to the bees, right? So how is it encouraging for the foragers to come back in? Maybe they'll go and drift to another colony, right? Or, you know, I don't know, there's, there's potential for, for that being an issue. Um, it depends, of course, on the concentrations, right? So, and then um, from, from, um, the observations from Ken, which are, you know, and you, which are very astute, it's only two colonies. So that to, to play the devil's advocate, I would say we can't really, you know, yeah. make a general rule about this. This might be circumstantial. However, you know, it's not circumstantial the other way around. Right. right. So right. keep in mind to your point. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't we didn't do a, a true actual scientific method that that is a very hard thing to try to accomplish with Mr. Oh, Milam. <laughs> no, with <laughs> specifically with Mr. Milam, <laughs> trying to get him <laughs> to stick to one parameter only and not change any other variables is a very difficult task. Um, and yeah. so Instead of actually doing like if, if we were truly going to go through and do his study, if he had 20 colonies, we should have divided it up and did 10 of them with treatments, 10 of them without seeing what the overall effect was. And if all 10 of those colonies had the same reaction and the other 10 didn't, mm -hmm. that would have been a better case for it. But we only we only treated two with that. The other two were treated with something else. So we really didn't have a true apple to apples comparison. But it was a good astute point on his part, you know, that the bees that got treated with that, they didn't like it. One left, the other one died and the comb stank. 
and right. yeah <laughs> so well and and so in in with a super organism that's something that's really hard to do is actual significant i mean meaningful studies because there's so many parameters and it would take so many colonies and all of them are going to be different by the simple fact that the queens are open mating and they all have different you know um genetic makeups the, the colonies do so it's kind of hard, it's kind of comparing apples to pears to oranges yeah to, apples know, oranges like, yeah kind of like, yeah so but um the other thing is that um apparently there were some issues where and it's probably from um the fact that the the pollen might get contaminated by contacts in that pollen is what turns into bee bread in the colony and that's what is part of the brood food the diet of the larvae right of the worker bees and apparently there's uh, some studies that thymol has a negative effect on uh larval you know stages including potentially um uh, negative effects on the levels of vitellogenin which is also a fat body right so there might be some contamination <laughs> That's a direct tie to their immune system <laughs> in their immune system so they kind of like circles back to what we were just talking about but also by ingestion uh, essential oils are known to um interfere and disrupt the gut microbiota right so you you're doing that also a disservice. They don't absorb nutrients necessarily as well, but also that's part of their immune system as well, right? So I think that it has to be taken with uh, caution and realize that there might be some unintended consequences to that. Now, the other aspect of things and what we were mentioning at the beginning is even if all that was fine, you're still putting pressure on the mites. Right. And they can develop resistance to essential oils. So you're you're breeding, you know, stronger mites and and weaker bees because you're kind of like trying to first of all weaker because they're not uh, receiving that pressure, but also because now you're potentially contaminating their wax, their comb, their honey. Um, you know, the, you've impacted their, their pollen, immune system. Their you've their impacted their digestive system, their yeah, communication and, and, system, their photo. <laughs> if yeah. they can see light and dark. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And how about the pheromones that they communicate with? Those are based right. on your health. pheromones are going to be very much impacted if that's constantly off gassing inside the colony, mm -hmm. which goes back to my whole. Is it meant to be permanent? How often do you have to change it? Right. Is it is it supposed to be a treatment like the stuff inside the hive or is it supposed right. to be there permanently? Because mm -hmm. if it's a permanent thing and you're putting one of these on every so often. Right you've constantly overwhelmed the colony with this other scent that is not their pheromone that is strong. It is a strong smell. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, more research is needed and obviously it shouldn't be on the surface. It, it should be also long-term, right? Several colonies and longer term. What's the actual impact? What's the contamination? What's uh, the, uh, like you were talking about the, um, the, the the duration of that contamination the the accumulation yeah, that's and, true to the accumulation mm -hmm. yeah because uh wax again is lipophilic so that gets accumulated and unless you cycle your comb out that's not going to get taken out so those concentration levels are going to rise well and most unfortunately uh most langstroth beekeepers do not cycle their comb nearly as often as they probably should and definitely not as much as a top bar beekeeper would <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's another thing that we didn't talk about is the impact on the queens, right? What is the impact, if any, on the queens? Because they get fed by bees that, you know, 
um, are exposed to all that. So I, I don't know. There was um, a thought about nurse bees are inside the hives and then worker bees are outside. So also how much of, and, and where the mites reproduce is in the bird's nest and they prefer the nurse bees and, and, and all the stuff. So, so do we really, are we really targeting the nurse bees when we're getting that at the entrance where the foragers are going in and out because right. that level of isolation that's part of their immune system is to isolate the bruise nest uh from the outside factors as much as possible and that is done by disconnecting the worker the foragers the field force from the bruise nest basically so there is drift there is you know uh robbing that can happen after the fact so there's all that stuff to consider as well yeah and that was one of my original questions was it, it kind of almost reminded me of oxalic acid treatments where i when i was up in georgia um i was listening to two very well educated professors have an argument over if oxalic acid was truly effective or not really? and one of them said even if you're treating every single day yes. at mm -hmm. the same time, you will never kill all the mites. And the mm -hmm. point of that was because there are mites that are under the capping and oxalic right. acid does not treat underneath the That's cappings right. for the brood and the mite. Exactly. That mite, minimum of three pregnant mites emerge out. So you've got four, technically, the mom and then the three daughters that have come out that are already impregnated by their brother. Yay for incest inside the cells. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they come out now. Yeah, maybe mom takes a break and she climbs on the back of a bee, or maybe mom doesn't because she's already fully developed. But maybe the daughters climb on the back of the bee and they go through a phoretic stage where they feed on the bee for a little while before they decide to go back down to the capping. However, unless they're coming out of the capping and say say you're treating at nine o'clock every day, unless they're coming mm -hmm. out at nine o'clock or nine o five you didn't get those mites. And then they've got the whole rest of that day to do whatever they want. And mm -hmm. any of them that by the end of the day, go down into a new brood cell with a, a larva that is old enough to be capped, you will mm -hmm. never get that mite. That mite will always miss your treatment. You're only going to treat the ones that are on the right. backs of the bees. So from that standpoint, if you take that analogy and you kind of play it over to the other side, Absolutely. if you had some way of having a colony that was 100% mite-free, you install them into this hive and then you have that entrance reducer on there. That's the only way that I can see where it would actually prevent anything from happening because if it truly killed them as they came in, well, then there's no way for mites to invade your colony because you're taking them out as they come in. If the mites are already in there, just having it at the entrance is never going to get rid of all the mites that are in there because those mites don't just come and go through the colony. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no. So I, I, I mean, I don't know. And and th that the only one of the treatments that does that, I think, is formic acid. Correct. Formic is the only one that does underneath the cappings. And formic um, is harsh, by the way. It, formic is of... formic is harsh. But again, it's one of those don't be dumb and follow the directions. Because back in the day when I would treat, that was the only thing that I would use was formic. But I was very limited when I could use it. Mm -hmm. And I did it because one, it was the only one that treated under the cappings. It was the only one you could use if you had honey supers on. Um, but 
you can nuke an entire colony. And that's yeah. not the that's not the N-U-C word. That's the N-U-K-E word. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the really bad nuke. One. <laughs> you destroy the entire colony. You can kill your queen. You oftentimes will kill every single egg that has been laid and she's going to have to start over. So it is not without drastic repercussions. And if you do not provide the actual additional spacing, the additional ventilation and airflow, and if you do not treat it when it's below the temperature threshold, you will kill your colony straight up. So let me get this straight. You're you're spending money on the product. You're spending time. You're potentially poisoning yourself because you have to wear a mask. You have to wear all this stuff. Yep, and, it'll and burn your eyes, yourself. burns your lungs. It's not a good thing. And, and, and you're, you're really stressing your colony and you're, you're making the colony pay an additional toll on top of what the mites are already taking with a trade-off that's not necessarily you know uh positive because your yeah, colony you, might you killed the mites and your colony right along with it or left or or something so is it really worth it as opposed to using natural selection um and we're not talking about evolution i wanted to make that point i've been wanting to make that point for a long time a lot of people say well the mites have been um evolving evolving with the ap serana for millions of years and and they got onto the uh, european honeybees and they haven't evolved co-evolved right so they cannot evolve in the span of time that we have to defend to find defense mechanisms uh from the mites so therefore we should treat well, the point is that this is completely confusing um, uh, evolution with natural selection. Natural selection happens a lot faster. Uh, it's not at the gene genetic necessarily level. Uh, the bees will find mechanisms. They will um, then select for those mechanisms that are successful. And you can have within the space of two to five years, uh, a, a really turnover with bees that are very resistant to the past. And that's what we've seen in many parts of the world. And so it's different from evolution. But, um, you know, so we, we, we're really putting that pressure um, on, on the mites to get stronger, but it's really, and, and at the same time, what we're doing is we're putting a Band-Aid on uh, something when the issue, we're, we're not looking for the forest behind the trees. Uh, the tree. That's close. That, that was close right. enough. <laughs> and so what happens is that we have a symptom, you know, so you have very strong, nice, healthy colonies that are vibrant, that are very vitally strong. And then you don't see the problems with the pests and the diseases. And um, when you have an issue with a pest or a disease, uh, very often that's because there's an under, there's another, there's an underlying reason. And this usually starts with your queen, the quality of your queen, how well she was made it, how vibrant and vitally strong she is. And that kind of trickles down to everything else. And we've had many colonies with high numbers of mites that are thriving. Yeah. So, when you talk about the queen specifically to kind of illustrate that, it's the fact that if the queen doesn't mate with a very large selection of drones and those drones all have the same sort of traits and genetic profile she may miss out on having the genetic material of say hygienic and grooming behavior mm -hmm. if she does not have that then no there's no chance for any of her offspring to then yeah. exhibit the predisposition to have this going through and cleaning and grooming and chewing and biting mites and removing them because they don't have that hygienic trait. Now, it could be there encoded in the gene somewhere and it could eventually arise, but it's not prevalent. It's not active. Whereas if she mates with 50 drones and, you know, even a third of those have some aspects of hygienic behavior, then a third of her offspring inside there could very well come up 
with this hygienic behavior so that when something happens, it's not necessarily that the colony shifts immediately. It's that, oh, these bees know how to handle that. Mm-hmm. And those bees then survive. And that's where your natural selection kind of comes through. The colony can adapt and change because exactly. the different bees inside there have a different way to cope with things. And those are the ones then that get to move their genetics forward. Mm-hmm. So, and, and by the way, a colony of honeybee cycles through its entire uh, workforce within what, six months, I think it is. It's kind of like your skin. It's just kind of your skin, I think, is what we do. I think it's yeah. every six months we have new skin. Yeah. Uh, I might be extrapolating on the, the bees. bees but... Well, the bees, technically, a worker bee uh-huh. today, their lifespan, they're lucky if it's six weeks during the yeah, peak exactly. forage seasons. So, so it's not very long for them to go through an entire cycle yeah. of generation. And that means that that speed with which they cycle through and cycle out, the only individual that's going to stick around is the queen. And in the meantime, you have that many uh, more opportunities, that speed of natural selection is going to play not only at the colony level within a season, but also season through season as some of those are eliminated from the gene pool, right? So the genetics from those drones that might have uh, grooming behavior, hygienic behavior, capping, recapping, uh, uncapping, recapping, all that stuff um, has a chance to play in that um, hyper- uh, what do you call that already? Um, when the drones, the hyper mating, no, hyper, I forget what it's called. When the uh, hyper polyandry, I think it's called, right? So when the mate, the queen mates with so many drones, that's that many more chances as well. We always kind of like compare it to um, what we see in um, cow breeding, hog breeding, you know, all this stuff. We can't. That biology, that mating biology is completely different. Uh, so we we can't make parallels there. There's definitely a lot faster mechanisms for them to um, kind of find ways to take care of themselves. Well, one of the other aspects too with the drones is that if that colony has those traits and then therefore that colony survives, those drones are able to then spread that genetic material and encoding out to new virgin queens, which means the offspring they lay will yeah. then also have that genetic disposition to go through and do stuff. They'll be predisposed to do it. But if you are weakening a colony and you're helping it limp along and you're allowing it to survive when in reality it would not have, then those genetics that would not survive in reality are what's being spread by those drones. And exactly. so it's not a great way to uh, help. <laughs> and it's kind of like uh, the complaint of people that are trying to raise their bees naturally or to do treatment free, you know, kind of selecting for the uh, strains of bees that are naturally resilient and tolerant. And, and so if you, it's that much harder to do in an area where you have a lot of it, Italian commercial, you know, uh, treated bees that are casting those genetics through their drones. Um, to have a queen that's mated well enough. Um, but there's also other issues with queens as um, the potential for inbreeding, right? So if a queen with mates with mates with too many drones that are too closely related to her uh, lines of genetics, then she, it might end up being more inbred. And, in, uh, you know, as opposed to hybrid vigor, you end up with inbreeding depression, meaning you've got a lot of diploid drones that are being born, and that means they are pulling those out. And that can be the explanation for a spotty brood pattern. Yep. Uh, it's not always the mark of a mite issue or hygienic behavior. Well, it is hygienic behavior because they're pulling out those diploid yeah. drones. It's not necessarily right? an indication that the queen is misfiring. She's laying in all exactly. those cells, mm-hmm. but the bees are removing those larvae because there's something wrong with them at exactly. a genetic level. 
Right. And um, and so you never see those pop pockmarking your comb because then they they, they get uh, taken out as soon as they hatch as larvae. They're they're gone. I think they might actually remove them as eggs. I don't remember. But the point is that that's one of the reasons for spotty bird pattern. Another one is like you said, hygienic behavior and the and um, mite issues, right? So those yeah. are the three main reasons for spotty bird patterns. And I would say another one is also nutrition. If you have a lot of resources that are coming in and they don't know where to put it, they're going to start packing it everywhere. So yep. that might also contribute somewhat to a spottiness. Yeah. You have to look, if there's something in that hole mm. or if there was something in the hole, like say there's pop in there, that they're not going to take that out to put an egg right. in there. It's going to be there till they use it. Now, right. if there's nectar or if you're feeding them and there's sugar syrup in there, she may have came through and laid, but there may have been some pockets of sugar syrup. Right. And then after the fact, they use that to feed the larvae that are developing around it. Exactly. So now it's an empty cell, but right. it didn't start off that way or vice right. versa a larva emerged and immediately a bee put something in there so the queen couldn't come back and land that spot. So those are things you have to, to take into consideration when looking at a brood pattern. But you you mentioned something, we're not going to go too far into depth in this, but you mentioned something that um, always fascinated me because there's, there's two things with the genetics of bees that kind of make your mind melt, especially mm -hmm. when you're first getting started. The right. first aspect is the fact that the queen when she lays a fertilized egg, meaning the genetics from two father and mother, you get a female bee. Mm -hmm. But when she lays just an egg that is not fertilized, you get a drone. And mm -hmm. that drone is basically, and this is very high level, I'm being stupid here, but the drone is basically a clone of the queen, but it's a boy. Right. Right, and that exactly. doesn't happen. You can't make a clone, but the clone be right. a different gender because then you're like, wait, what? And so when people first learn that, like their heads explode, they're going, I, I wait a minute. I'm trying to understand. Here, well, here's I was going to say, this is how they figured it out. They were doing experiments in with uh, the German black queen, black breed uh, queens and uh, crossing them over with uh, Italian drones. And, and so a lot of the, all the workers were blonde, like Italians. They had those gold. And all the drones yeah. were black, just like the mother. And they, that's when their mind exploded. Yeah. yeah. So when you're explaining that to the lay person, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So she, she lays an egg, but the egg's not fertilized. So it's literally just her genetic material. So it's a clone, but it's a boy. And I'm like, right. And they're like, yeah. no, that's not how science works. That can't be, that's not, that's not how that does. Well, so you, the other thing that you mentioned in there that is also interesting is you talked about inbreeding. Now, right. the funny thing though, is there's technically in the bee world, because why make it easy, right? In the bee world, there's inbreeding just like there would be in everything else where it's literally her offspring mating with her kind of thing. It wouldn't be that because that doesn't happen. She doesn't go back out and mate again, but it can be brothers mating with the sisters. So mm -hmm. her boys mating with her girls and therefore right. you could get inbreeding that way. Exactly. But to screw with your head, you can have that whole other set of inbreeding, which is what you talked about, which is on the genetic level, even though the bees are not related and did not come from the same mother, they can come from the same stock of bees. And you've been doing all this grafting and all these queen right. rearing. And now all of your colonies have the exact same attributes and characteristics, even right. though they are not technically related. Their mm -hmm. genetics and their characteristics are so close that then when they start breeding, it's the same exactly. thing as inbreeding. And you get that depression in the genetic right. code and you come up with bees that are deformed just as if they had mated with their mothers, fathers, yeah. brothers, sisters. And the it's longer bizarre. you do that, the more. 
the more it can happen, right? So you get generations like um, in three, five, seven years, you can end up with that issue kind of like really screwing what is going on with your breeding. I think that's what happened with the star lines or I forget what uh, breed uh, breeding program we're trying. No, not the star line. That was the other ones, the older ones. Um, they ended up having to shut down the programs because that's what happened. You bred yourself out of mm-hmm. effectiveness entirely. Yeah. So. Uh, back over to our topic, sort of, kind of, but adjacent. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> I, I told you to, to put a pin in the whole subject of the royal jelly aspect of oh, yes. adding things to products. Now, this is, I don't know if this is going to sound hypocritical or not, because you have to understand from a beekeeper standpoint what we do and if you do it correctly because there's obviously there's a mindful way to do it. There's a moral way to do it. And then there's the commercial. I don't give a shit. I want to make a bunch of money way to do things. Exactly. And you, you kind of mentioned like follow the money at the beginning. Well, when I hear about people, what honey has been added as a natural sweetener. Absolutely. Go for it. Do it all you want to do because if you're doing it responsibly, you're taking it from the bees when the bees have excess and you're leaving plenty for them. And if you got enough to do it, go for it. Not a problem. You're adding pollen to stuff. If there's an area that has like an uber pollen flow, because I've had colonies before that were pollen bound that were just frame after frame after frame. Oh, yeah, me too. And I'm starting to freeze those because I want to do something with that. Yeah. So if you've got that problem, then absolutely harvest some pollen. It basically it knocks it off their legs as they come in, but not all of it. It's just like every other bee kind of thing. So they're still getting pollen coming in, but some of it's also going down into your pollen trap. You're taking it and you're using it for stuff. That's fine. I don't think, and this is this is where I'm, I'm going to probably get myself in trouble. I do not think anybody should ever harvest royal jelly, period. I completely agree. <laughs> because it is not an abundant resource. It is literally only created on the spot to feed newborn larvae for the first few days and to feed the queen for her entire life. That's it. That's all. To get an excess amount of royal jelly, you have to trick a colony into raising a shit ton of queens and then basically murder them all because you're going to suck with little pipettes, suck out all the royal jelly from these cells. That is a huge resource drain because they're eating the pollen to get the protein to create this glandular secretion that comes out as this thick, white, viscous, bitter royal jelly. And then you're harvesting that so that you can make a product with it. Now, that's not something that is in abundance. That is not something that you're like, oh, I can just take this away and that's going to be fine. That is a direct detrimental impact to your colony. (laughs) I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's something I really wanted to talk about. And the fact, add to that, the fact that royal jelly might not be very stable when you when you hit regular temperatures and or the, the process of mixing it with other ingredients so are we really even making any kind of difference now with that in mind i understand that um it might be part of ayurvedic re- remedies i think that there was talk on her website because she's got two websites she's got one for the um the, the she's got one for the guard. hive guard the and then she's got one for the queen bee supplement mm-hmm. yeah exactly and uh, so she was saying basically when she first got her bees she was using the honey and the uh, royal jelly to make herself shots mixed with ginger and other turmeric powder and things like that it's a very ayurvedic kind of remedy 
Um, I doubt there was a lot in the one colony and, and keeping it the way we're supposed to for, for that to be a lot of royal jelly, honestly. I mean, just the simple fact that it's hard to collect to start with is, is one reason. But um, that's what kind of pushed her to kind of do things differently and start uh, producing more, I mean, using more bees. But um, yeah. I, I, you know, <laughs> so go take a look at the website for yourselves. There's other observations that you will uh, hopefully make that I'm not going to discuss and, and just can decide for yourself. Yeah, that's that's basically what it kind of boils down to. It's just it was one of those things that like I read it. I did not want it necessarily to be a negative towards her. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I will make a distinction, though, between like Michaela with me and the bees lemonade. Mm-hmm. They're using honey, mm-hmm. period. And then it is the sweetener for lemonade. They're not trying to become extravagant and add all this extra stuff in there. I don't have a problem with that. I support Michaela 100% all the way down the road. I also like the ingenuity and the other things that are going on here with this. But when I read the part about the royal jelly, Mm -hmm. there's a difference between I went to my colony. It was this specific thing that happened this one time at this one point in time of the year where there was Mm -hmm. a bunch of queen cells and I didn't want queens because I didn't want them to swarm. So I was like, hey, there's all this excess royal jelly. And I made myself something. There's a big difference between that and I am going to mass produce it, bottle it and sell it across the country Mm -hmm. because then the amount and demand that you need for that suddenly is going to become something that one is either very detrimental to your colonies or you soon find out is not sustainable or attainable Mm -hmm. from your colonies. And therefore you have to start sourcing it. And if you start sourcing it, where is it going to end up coming from? Not here. (laughs) Yeah, I will not say where it's coming from. I think everybody at this point kind of knows where royal jelly is produced at a large scale. Um, And and so you don't know what you're putting in your drinks. So just kind of be mindful of that as well. Now, I, I, you know, with all of the things that we've talked about, I think it's fantastic to come up with entrepreneurial ideas. I think it's uh, great to come up with a good story for, for it. I think it's, there's nothing wrong with trying to make money with um, husbandry um, as long as it's done mindfully. And, um, but I I just kind of, um, I don't know. I just think that we talked about a lot of the things that had me raising eyebrows a little bit. So, yeah. In a hopefully mostly harmless, non-insulting way. (laughs) No, I think we were very thoughtful. I mean, um, it's important to think about the unintended consequences, right? Of everything. We talk about it all the time. It's it's every aspect of our life. There can be unintended consequences. So, yeah. And, and if we don't do it, then who's going to do it, right? So somebody's responsible for bringing up the pros and cons on both sides. And you've done it with Ken. And I think it's important for everybody to think critically about everything that's coming through and, and to just kind of see, um, yeah, all this stuff is really cool. It's really good. We just got to keep in mind this other stuff, right? Yeah. And that's really the ultimate goal is yeah. to, and it, it, I, you know, ad nauseum, we've said this multiple times, it's to make you think, to make right. you stop, to make you question and say, hey, like, is that really something that I want to be doing? Does it fit my needs and my goals or right. does it not? And there can be things that we advocate that you can say, you know, that feasibly it just doesn't work for me. And there can be other things that, you know, you may agree with and be like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Or maybe I should do this instead. You know, it's it's all about you and your own beekeeping. And it's all about you thinking critically, being mindful, taking the information right. in, take what works for you and use it. 
And yeah. if it doesn't work for you, leave it behind. That's fine. <laughs> but just kind of keep uh, thinking ahead really thoroughly because uh, or, uh, super, uh, no, a colony of honeybees is a super organism. There's a lot of things that come into play. As simple as those little holes are what, three-eighths of an inch, a, a, a quarter of an inch. And how do the drones come out? What if there's a pile up of, of dead bees inside the colony? How do they pull them out, right? So there's things like that. But at the very least, I will say she's not using uh, flumethrin, which I think is what Bayer's was using on their version of that, right? So Yeah, no, see, and that was the whole thing you mentioned at the beginning, that there were yeah. two... Because when I first brought it up, you said, well, there was another study that was done at one point in time, and there's kind of like Five a competing thing and or a competing item out there, which doesn't surprise me at all either. As soon as you come up with something clever and you go to any type of media attention with it, right? there's ultimately going to be somebody who's going to try to either beat you to market so that they get the market share or use their name and incorporate your idea and then be able to write off of that and put you out of business and take all the money. So mm -hmm. that's never a good thing either. <laughs> well, and which one is which, right? I mean, I know that the Verogate that's called, um, I, I was looking at a video that was published five years ago on right. that, that by Bayer, right? So chicken in the right. egg, which one? Right, who, who had the idea first, who was more of a novel concept, all that fun stuff. Um, I can answer the question though about the drones. Okay. If the hole is not big enough for the drones to get out. They'll eat them the bees will kill them and yeah. they will eat them except for right. their heads. And then you will have these strange little black drone berries yeah. <laughs> piled over in a corner somewhere. We talked about it before. Yeah. You well, talked about the drone berries. Because I, so in a top bar hive, I always use the entrance portals. And a lot of times at certain points of the year, I will not have it on a setting. The drones can get out because oh, yes. maybe I just put in a new queen or maybe I'm doing something and I don't want her to get out. So therefore I don't want them to get out. Cause if they can, she can. And uh, there have been plenty of times that I have opened up the back of a top bar hive where there's no comb. And in the far back corner, away yeah. from everything, is a pile <laughs> of these little round balls. And you're like, what the hell are those? And then you look and they're eyeballs and heads. They're they're the head of the bee. It's literally all that's left is its head. But they've devoured everything else and it's gone. Oh, wow. <laughs> or they tear it apart brutal. small enough that they can carry it out and throw it away, Maybe but the head, it. they can't. And so therefore they carry it to the back of the colony and create a little pile of bee skulls, oh, which skulls. is really disturbing. <laughs> Game of Thrones. That's right. This is what happens. <laughs> oh, well, so there you go, everybody. Uh, hopefully you have enjoyed today's conversation. Maybe gave you a little food for thought there again. There are the links there for the original episode between Ken and I, where we talked about this as a high level concept. Now you've got today's episode where we're talking about it as more of a reality because it is potentially coming to market soon. Definitely not by the end of this year because there's only one month left. So soon, quote unquote. Okay. And uh, and there's also a link down there to the just one of the articles. I'm sure there's plenty of them out there because when you do the media circuit, you get oh, yeah. that or other companies just go and take your interview and regurgitate yeah, it for their own. So, but you can read that and check it out, see what you think. We greatly appreciate you tuning in with us today. But as always, uh, oh no, no, hang on, I got ahead of myself. We appreciate you tuning in with us today. Look forward to talking to you next week. That's what I miss. That's but right. as always, be good and be mindful. <laughs> bye, bye, everybody. Hi, everyone. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. 
and we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs>